0: we were going to be able to provide resources for youth directors. Uh, and so uh, myself and another individual were tasked uh, with starting this whole process of finding ways to um, equip youth directors with a sense of understanding of ministry uh, that might be of assistance to them. Uh, and so that was sort of the true genesis of uh, YLT uh, before it kind of became formalized about 10 or 12 years ago uh, uh, under some other leadership Uh, involved in the ministry. Um, Since that time, I I can't tell you just how gratifying it is uh, to see that now that it's been going for a while, there's these generational uh, experiences people are having with RYM. Uh, I can see you getting to know each other. I can see you building relationships with one another. And so much of that is very much at the heart uh, of what was designed in this whole uh, uh, ministry and what we were longing for in this whole ministry. As uh, to see you networking together and thinking through your ministry so that we don't do what often ha- times happens, which is to, uh, to burn out and make really dumb, bad mistakes in ministry. Or worse, uh, be victimized as a youth director. Uh, some of you have discovered, oftentimes the hard way, that churches can't al- aren't always safe places. Uh, and a lot of times those lack of safe places leave people very jaded and exhausted on the other side of being involved in youth ministry. And I'm sure we could all go around and tell stories that would be similar to that. Um, but my goal today is to simply get us back into the realm. I realized that last year was the weirdest year ever. Uh, I'm 53 years old, and I've never had a year like last year. Uh, and since there was a delayed uh, sort of experience with uh, YLT from last year, uh, we decided to do this one in some ways as a little bit of an alternative uh, track uh, and to do some different things. And it was really helpful for me because it gave me a chance Uh, to do something that I've been wanting to do, uh, that you're going to be guinea pigs uh, of today. (laughs) Um, And that is to look at RYM's philosophy of ministry uh, a bit more from a 50,000-foot view. Uh, I I typically am the uh, uh, sort of growing deeper with the POM person uh, that's trying to do some sort of meticulous drawing between graphics that we've gotten used to and lingo that we try to help disseminate among your ministries and among your leadership. Uh, but what I want to do today uh, for the next you know, couple hours is to do sort of the big overview and ask sort of large-scale questions about what we mean by a philosophy of ministry uh, and how that philosophy of ministry interacts with, for lack of a better word, the vibe of my ministry, or the, the word I'm going to use is the culture of your ministry. Um, we are making an assumption that you are in the process on a regular basis Of building something. There is something that's being established. There is something that's being constituted because of your presence in your church and working in your youth ministry. And what I want to look at today is the ways in which that culture can be understood, the ways in which that culture can be molded and changed, and finally, the way in which that culture can help us do ministry from a position of strength rather than from frantic uh, a panic that we oftentimes find ourselves when it comes to the warp and woof of uh, daily campus ministry. So that's our big thing to do today. We're going to tell a lot of stories. Please do me a favor. I need a lot of interaction with some of this. Anything that you have no idea where that fits, why would you mention that? I would love to hear you interact and sort of uh, push back on me in any way you can, uh, and we'll visit through it as much as we need to. Having said that, Joel, do we have like a, a, a flip chart but nothing to hold it on? I'm feeling that from you. Oh, okay. We do have pa- papers a step in the right direction. Um, I tell you what, just bring that up here. Do we have a marker? <laughs> I love it. Oh, look at that. Somebody brought markers in their car. If you happen to have an easel, then things get even better. John's trying to find something. Okay. I don't mind holding it up. I'll draw the picture and then hold it up for everybody and do it like, a, like when you're in kindergarten and the teacher would read you a story and she would do this with the book at the end. I'll do that with some of the drawings as we get into it. Well, I was thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we'll see how the technology goes uh, in a new spot. It's always, it's always fun going to a new spot and rolling with the punches. But can I pray for us before we begin this morning? Let's uh, begin it. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful uh, for the network that you've built among RYM. Uh, we have been profoundly lonely. Uh, it has been over a year that we were separated from each other. Uh, Some of us believe for good reasons. Some people may be convinced that it was bad reasons, but regardless, we come in here really desperately needing each other uh, because we know that what we get with each other will be an expression of getting you. Uh, And so we ask that you would come and minister to and be with and move among us this uh, week while we renew old friendships, while we think through what we've been doing, and while we try to become better at what we're doing uh, as youth directors. So please help us, Father, we pray this morning, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so there's a friend of mine who um, uh, was, was kind of funny, and I don't know whether he was actually repenting of what he had done, but he, he and his wife had determined that they were going to be um, uh, no Santa Claus people in their family and in their homes. Now, look, Amen. if you're a no Santa Claus person, this is nothing against you. Uh, I don't want to take anything away from that at all. Uh, But my friend was sort of expressing to me a certain experience that they had had with their oldest child, who is now long since grown and, and, you know, marginally uh, uh, functional in life, so maybe the the anti-Santa Claus thing worked for him. Um, But he was talking about uh, the conversation that they had with their child somewhere around between the ages of four and five years old. Uh, That was the first time when the conversation about Santa was coming up and there were things that were being told at school, and he was having questions and whatnot. Well, along about, as soon as the kid turns around five, they sit him down, and they have uh, the, the sort of revelatory explanation. So, son, we just want you to know that your mom and dad, we we are Santa Claus. We're the ones who buy the gifts. We're the ones who put them under the tree. Uh, Santa Claus is a, is a thing that people make up and love to do among themselves. Uh, but when it comes to the fact of his there really is no Santa Claus. My friend reports that his five-year-old was extremely receptive and not even terribly disappointed. He was like, oh, okay, wow, mm, okay, no Santa Claus, right, 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 gotcha. And so they closed the conversation thought, huh, look what responsible parents we are, <laughs> right? Um, and we, just t- we decided not to lie to our children, right? So fast forward about five months. It's somewhere around, say, October-ish, right? And October, November is usually when uh, your child starts to tell you things that they're interested in for Christmas. Uh, but this uh, oldest child had not yet really dropped what he was into. Uh, so they were sitting around the dinner table and the father looked at him and was like, what are you looking for for Christmas this year? And he was like, oh, daddy, more than anything else I want, I want, I want the PS3. I want the new PlayStation, whatever the new PlayStation was, PS1, 2, 3, whatever it was. I want the new PlayStation because you got all these cool games and all my friends play them, blah, 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 blah. And um, it, my friend looked at him, he goes, well, now look, son, he said, I realize that that's a great gift and everybody's getting it and all the cool kids are going to have one, but you know, for your mom and me, we're probably not in a financial place where we're necessarily able to afford something like that. I mean, it would be nice, but that's kind of tough sort of for us to swing in that regard. At that moment, his child looked at him and was kind of like, looked at him incredulously and sort of said something to the fact, thank you so much, look at you prepared, fantastic. The child looked at him and basically said something like, well, I'm confused. Like, why would you care how much it costs? Santa Claus brings all those things. And of course, my friend sitting there, you can imagine him eating their dinner, just kind of went, what? <laughs> and put his fork down and was like, well, what did you say? He's like, well, Santa Claus brings all that stuff. I mean, that doesn't cost you all anything. It's no skin off your nose. <laughs> and so literally, my friend sat there and was like, well, and looked at his wife, and looked back at the kid, like, is he making a joke? He's not old enough to make a joke like that. That's not funny. And what he realized was, is the kid, it went straight past him, even with the agreement <laughs> that he, they were right, and that there was no Santa Claus. And so this, his, he and his wife, he said, spent like a week trying to figure out, like, I know we told him. You were there, right? You were there. You saw him agree that... What, I mean, does he have amnesia? Should we take him to the doctor? Does he need to get checked in some way? But what he said they finally came to was this. They realized that the culture that surrounds a child, that affirms the idea that there is absolutely a Santa Claus, a benevolent, you know, portly being, who comes to spread, you know, gifts to everyone in his wake, is so powerful and so... Um, Immersive, okay? That even in the face of direct, even agreed upon evidence to the contrary, it just went bing, bing and bounced off of him. Even even when the child agreed that what the parents were saying was true, it still didn't make a dent. What I want to try to pitch, and I want to I want to go through a bunch of illustrations this morning is to understand something about the culture of your ministry. The culture of your ministry is far more powerful than the lessons you teach in your Bible studies. You didn't hear me say that it's less important. I'm saying that it's more powerful because we can, once a culture settles in, To our youth ministries, and you cannot have this conversation without talking about your church as well. Once a culture settles into your church, it is almost impossible to shake people out of it with a clever lesson because culture is that immersive, it's that invasive, it's that unquestioned. It goes without saying for so many people, it lives in that system. So once you're living in that system, it ends up being um, uh, inevitable. Another illustration. So um, for years and years, for 25 years, I worked with a campus ministry known as Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, and uh, spent a lot of time talking to college students about their dating lives. Now, I unfortunately ended up developing a bit of a shtick when it comes to dating. Uh, It's another seminar for another time, but suffice to say, I was... um, fairly well, continue to be fairly well convinced that a lot of what uh, uh, comes with the modern dating ritual uh, uh, is not always helpful for flourishing relationships, okay? And part of what I thought was uh, not so helpful in those uh, consideration was people looking at dating as this sort of uh, from the outside looking in uh, bonding experience that obligated one person to another, Or, as we began to talk about it in my home, the boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Everybody thinks that I'm anti-dating. I'm actually quite the opposite. I'm super pro-dating. But it's when all of a sudden that dating turns into an institutionalized uh, faux covenant that I start to ask some questions about its, uh, its helpfulness, whether it causes people to flourish. Again, another seminar for another time. Well, I've been doing this and talking about this for years and years with college students. And most of the college students I interacted with pitied my own children thinking to themselves, oh my word, what a hellhole that must be to live with his opinions constantly kind of coming in and out. And that is absolutely the case. Um, and probably of all three of my children, the one that is the most interested in challenging what daddy thought is my middle child. And, you know, probably my favorite as well. I'm just kidding. That's a big joke. I just want to hear everybody kind of pause to see if you were listening. The funny thing about children is every one of them is your favorite. Have you ever noticed that? I'm going to do a sermon on this one day. Like Every child is my favorite, and I can't explain why that's the case. How does that happen? Anyway, I digress. My middle child, though, she's the one that looks like me. Uh, my, the oldest child looks like her mother, uh, and our youngest child uh, is a mixture of the both. But my middle daughter, uh, Caroline, uh, is just a delight and a joy, and she'll, she will push back on Daddy. She is not afraid to sort of challenge Daddy's sort of uh, assumptions. Uh, but the funny thing about the dating thing is she had embraced it. She had drunk the Kool-Aid and was like, you know what, Daddy, you're so right. You know, all that stuff happens it just complicates people. And I see all my friends are doing all this dating relationship. And whenever they get involved in it, it just they, they, they break up and people hate each other. It is not worth the mess. In the back of my mind, I'm breaking my arm to pat myself on the back for what an extraordinary parent that I've been in raising my middle daughter. Until such a time as he came along, right? When he came along... It was an entirely different story, and I watched from afar. And I've, I promise, I was not that person. To be like, "What are you doing? What are your intentions with this relationship?" I didn't do any of that. As a matter of fact, I stood on the outside. I even cheered for her when she came home, very excited that things were getting serious. She said, "My t- children tell me everything, so I knew when they had their first kiss and all of the goings on." No, that didn't bother me. I was kind of proud, right? Um, but as it sort of progressed on, she then sort of informed to us, and she at least knew enough to be a little sheepish around the dinner table to tell me this, where she was like, well, you know, Daddy, we, we, kind of, we kind of made it official last week. And again, I'm trying to be a support to my children. So I was like, well, congratulations, sweetie. This was something that you wanted, right? It was. It was, Daddy. I think it was good. Okay, that's great. Now, look, Daddy, I know what you're going to say. I didn't say anything. What are you talking about? No, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say this is not a good thing, but here's the deal. And so for, we started having about three or four conversations where she was building her case for trying to figure out why she really just wanted to date this dude. And the funny thing was, is after two or three of these conversations, <coughs> excuse me, she admitted, uh, and it's funny that we still talk about this, she admitted uh, that really, Daddy, when it comes down to it, I just am, so we're, we're dating because I really just want to be able to say that I have a boyfriend. Now, here's the deal. I treasure that kind of honesty from my middle child. <laughs> now, it's messed up, of course, but I was like, okay, at least we know what the terms are here. But here's what happens. The funny thing was is I did not pay attention to the fact that the culture of dating in a modern American high school was so thick with, uh, with obviousness, if you will, <laughs> that no amount of data, and you got to hear me, even agreement... From my middle daughter, yes, Daddy, Daddy, you are completely and absolutely right. Nothing could penetrate the, the culture that had been established that she was going into every single day. It was not going to happen. Now, over time, how long did that last? Six months or so? I'm looking to my assistant youth director here. Um, yeah, about six months or so. And when it all ended she really began to rethink things. Unfortunately, that's not happened again, even though now she's in college and would really like for it to happen again. But that's a whole another story as well. And parents would like for that to happen again as well. So boys, there's two cute girls. Aren't they darling? Aren't they pretty? CC, testify here, honey. I'm, I'm going to be talking to you all the time. So anyway. So, but let me take another example because that may, be too, that may be a little weird for you. One of the sort of what I would consider to be canonical examples of this that we saw in the business world, because business people understand uh, culture a lot better than the church does oftentimes. But what happened sort of in the business world uh, in, in, the, in around 2008 uh, centered around an interview that then CEO of Microsoft, uh, Steve Ballmer, did with one of the sort of um, financial uh, uh, t- television shows that was doing sort of financial pieces. And Steve Ballmer, very famously, laughed at this new device that uh, Apple had just come out with called the iPhone, Right? Literally laughed at it and said to, said to the interviewers, like, we have no fear of the iPhone uh, because there is simply no possible way uh, that that is going to overtake the functionality that you can only pack into a PC that's running Windows software. Okay? Now, why are we all laughing? <laughs> We're all laughing because that interview that took place about 13 years ago was so spectacularly wrong uh, that Ballmer ended up leaving Microsoft over his failure to see where the market was going. But here's what's really interesting about that. If you're my age, you, you would understand a little better that from 1985 to 2005, there was a 20-year span where there was nothing in computing except Microsoft. They had this theme that they lived by as a company that was um, a, a, a personal computer in every home, with every person running Windows software. That was their company theme. And arguably, by the early 2000s, they had accomplished that very thing. They had come in and were able to do so. The culture had become so locked in and convinced that Windows was the only way to see the world. And that, that's a metaphor, Windows to the world. <clears throat> the only way to see the world that honestly, it would have been more surprising had Steve Ballmer not laughed at the iPhone all right? But instead, in his laughing, he began to sort of fail to see the way the tide was shifting as they were, because the iPhone simply could not, could not fit into the grid that he was making. Uh, so about three years ago, we got to take a vacation out to California, and uh, we, tr- we, we drove up to go visit with some friends of ours and stay the night uh, with a guy who runs a startup in Palo Alto, like S- Silicon Valley uh, vintage kind of uh, experience here. Um, And one of the things that we did was we took a tour of Stanford University, and my friend was explaining to me in the tour that what every Stanford grad lives by and functions on the basis of is this idea of disruption. They're trying to go into markets, they're trying to go into fields, they're trying to go into ecosystems and disrupt it. They just want to challenge the status quo. Because in their mind, that's how you begin to progress and move forward. Well, that's exactly what you began to see um, happen uh, in, uh, um, in Apple's products. And some researchers, and I found an article that I thought was interesting about this, could tell you the time in which Apple certainly started disrupting that industry. Because the inertia that you feel towards a company, especially when that company is successful... The inertia that you feel is to get very solid and hardened and unable to listen to people from the outside. Stanford's not wrong with this whole disruption idea, but what happens is, is Apple comes along and basically Steve Jobs sort of moves away, develops a software uh, that's going to be a, a, an operating system for a new platform. Apple almost tanks sometimes in the mid '90s, and they hire him back sort of later on in the 90s, to bring Apple back. And of course, he introduces a very colorful little weirdly shaped computer called the iMac, right? there was in multiple colors, right? There was a blue one. Somebody must have had one. There was an orange one. There was a yellow one. It was completely radical uh, for its time, the iMac, as it uh, sort of hit the scene. Well, what was interesting was is Apple was dealing with software all the time. And, he was at, and Steve Jobs was at one of the early iterations of their big kind of shows that they put on where they introduced new software. And he's coming and talking about how they're going to enhance this operating system uh, uh, for the the company. And he stands up and he says, but we want to announce today that we have entered into a partnership uh, with someone to use their particular web browser instead of the web browser that we've been trying to develop because honestly it's better. And all of a sudden up on the screen came Bill Gates of Microsoft. You can go back and watch the YouTube of this, y'all. It's fascinating because the entire room begins to boo Steve Jobs. Boo! Windows, boo! You cannot say anything nice about anything Windows. And then Steve Jobs gets up and says this. This is amazing. He says, look, if we want to move forward and see Apple healthy and prospering again, we got to let go of a few things here. We have to let go of this notion that for Apple to win, Microsoft has to lose, okay? We have to embrace the notion that for Apple to win, Apple has to do a really good job. And if others are going to help us, that's great, because we need all the help we can get. (laughs) They were. They were dying at that time. And if we screw up and we don't do a good job, it's not someone else's fault. It's our fault. So I think that's a very important perspective. I think if we want Microsoft Office on Mac, We better treat the company that puts it out with a little bit of gratitude. (laughs) We like their software. So the era of setting up this as a competition between Apple and Microsoft is over as far as I'm concerned. Listen, Listen to this last line. This is so good. This is about getting healthy. And this is about Apple being able to make incredibly great contributions to the industry to get healthy and prosper again. What happened in that moment? That was in the late 90s, by the way. What happened in that moment when Steve Jobs all of a sudden says, we are not going to define ourselves by our opposition to something else. We're going to define ourselves by doing what we believe is great. We're going to live by our values. And my argument is, and so is this article's argument was, that was the culture change in Apple. Because Steve Jobs, the Messiah himself, had to stand up and inform his most loyal followers, which was all the Worldwide Developers Conference. It used to go together with Macworld. This is a geek, this is a geek illustration. I'm, I'm owning that. But to tell all of the rest of the, the little Yodas out there that were going to go out and write software for the Mac platform what this company was about. This is what the values were. Now, did it change overnight? Absolutely not. For years, there was opposition between Apple and Microsoft, but everybody knew that the guy at the top had the sight to be able to see what kind of culture he wanted Apple to be, and that was all the magic. And now Apple is, was, is now one of the first trillion-dollar companies in the world. Now, by the way, Apple is, not, uh, um, Apple is not immune to the same thing happening to them, not even a chance, I mean, it, Apple could very easily go the way of the dinosaur with just simple, simple changes in markets and the way in which people function. Why? Because the larger that you grow, actually, let, let me change that. It has nothing to do with larger, the size of your youth group. The more successful you are, the harder it is to think about your culture. Because what you begin to do is you begin to buy into your gifts, And your gifts end up being the very thing through which you discern what youth ministry is. And that's a fast way to either overwork if, you know, you're getting all of your, you know, your grins and giggles from work. It's able to underwork because you assume that you already know how kids are today. That won't work. We tried that five years ago, that kind of mentality. Regardless, it leads to pathology when we stop asking questions about who we are, why are we doing what we're doing, what are the forces that are taking over within our ecosystem that are changing the way my students experience the gospel. Because your culture is the context in which you are preaching the gospel. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The gospel is not less than the content that we preach. We are not liberals here. The gospel is essentialized in the content of the pages of Scripture and translated through the Reformed tradition as it comes down to us, Reformed uh, youth ministries. That's the essence of it. But the gospel will always be embodied in a culture to the point where that culture can either reinforce what the gospel is saying, or you better believe it can contradict it and work against it. So here's what I want to launch. And those are just a a handful of illustrations where we dive into some stuff here. I I want you to start thinking about this question. What is the culture of my church? Start with your church, because that's most important for youth ministers. And then what is the culture of my youth ministry? To whatever degree that I can separate those things. What is the culture of my church, first of all? And what is the culture of youth ministry? Uh, We began to feel this very acutely uh, about two years ago. Um, So our church uh, has been wonderfully blessed uh, to be able to move into a brand new building in Oxford, Mississippi uh, in the last um, year. We moved in last August, as a matter of fact. Um, And watching us go through the process of building a building was really educational for me. Now, I had the benefit in my first couple of years, I've only been there for three years, uh, but we were building for about two of those first uh, those years. Um, I had the benefit of being kind of the new kid on the block, which was awesome because nobody really could blame anything on me yet. I could just ask really dumb questions and everybody like, well, we don't do that that way, blah, blah, blah. So we were having a conversation, I remember when this came home to me, about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the sanctuary. Uh, there was no room that got designed and redesigned more than our sanctuary. Um, And it's beautiful, isn't it, Cece? Say something nice about our church because it's really lovely. Um, Cece, by the way, has the best office in the entire building. By far, the most coveted room is Cece's office. But that's another story that'll come in later. So we're talking about what we're going to do with um, uh, trying to do projection screens. Okay? And so we're sitting there talking about uh, 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 whether we're we're going to have them. uh, And the, the architect mentions in order to sort of achieve... Uh, the size screen that we would need for everyone in the auditorium to read uh, very easily. Uh, and of course, there's math formulas, like for how far the distance is going to be from the back row to the screen, it's got to be a certain size in order for normal fonts to be legible from far back, right? Architects. You, architects work for a living. This I have learned. <clears throat> so we were talking about these screens, and at one point, people were sort of cringing about the screens as they're like, eh. I just don't want to have that thing where you've got a bar coming down from the ceiling of the sanctuary and there's a a projection device mounted on the bar and it's shining up there. And they're like, is there any way that we can avoid that? At which point the architect looks at him and goes, well, you could use LED screens. So the idea was to take televisions that actually are made to link together like a jumbotron. You ever seen one of those? All those are is a bunch of like 50 inch televisions pieced together like a puzzle and put together for the use. The timing was perfect, Joel. Like you could not have come in at a better time. I have literally nothing to do with that. Right, this. When I, but you're carrying it in so you get all the credit. But I will take all that credit. <laughs> That's the essence of youth ministry right there. <laughs> Part of it. Good, good, good. Thanks. That was perfect timing. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, he mentions that we could do LED screens. Now, look, here's the deal. The question of screens had kind of already been settled, but the second someone knew that it was going to be a television kind of pieced together up there, there was a chorus that came from the entirety of the design team, which was about eight to 10 people. They all went, ugh. And I was like, okay, um, why are you ugh? And someone was like, oh, it's too expensive. And the architect was like, actually, you'd be surprised. It's not quite as expensive as you think it would, especially when you see how long it's going to last. It was soundly defeated. For zero reason other than the fact that people were like, that just doesn't feel right. That just doesn't feel right. doesn't feel right to have TVs inside the church screen. Now, here's the funny thing. I I kept asking questions like, time time out. Why are y'all so upset about screens? At which point, they caricatured me as the pro screen guy. You're the one who wants televisions in the sanctuary. I I, I don't want televisions. I'm just fascinated by how violently y'all all all reacted against them. Because there may be something you know about TVs that I don't. So what was going on there? What happened was, is there was an unspoken, unknown, until it got launched out there, assumption that people were living with that said to themselves, you don't put a television inside a church screen. Now, a, pro- a rear projected, <laughs> here's the crazy thing. The projection that we ended up getting, we have, so this, this is fun. Our screens are on two little uh, angled sides of the sanctuary, okay? And, and, and there's a very small corner where that has to go. So I don't want to tell you how much money we spent to get the, the, the lens that would spray that image up widely enough to fit the whole screen. You don't want to know how much that costs. <laughs> but it ain't a TV, gummit, you know, because <laughs> TVs don't belong to the sanctuary. <laughs> but my whole thing was like, how does assumption like that get? How do we get to the opinions that we get about, this is just what you don't do? When we begin to wrestle with the philosophy of ministry, You're asking those questions. And we believe, and by we, I mean RYM, believes that you should regularly, at least once a year, at least once a year, be getting together and sitting down with other people to ask those kinds of questions about why you have come to the convictions you have about the way youth ministry ought to be. We think that is valuable because what ends up happening is is assumptions and um, things that are obvious take over, and once they take over, they limit our ability either to grow, maybe to change, maybe to adapt to circumstances that come along. Having a sense of a philosophy of ministry can help protect you from that. It can help you protect you from a, from a culture that has actually uh, started to struggle. All right, I want to do one more thing on culture here, so I, I make sure we've got a good... Um, what a, what a great little carry bag this is for this. Who got this for me? Somebody really nice got it. Thank you. So, what is your name? Grayson. Grayson, do you carry around a nice little bag of? Uh... Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, good, good. This is a really helpful little bag. Thank you, Grayson. Um, so, the question is, how do we define the culture of your youth ministry? I've already asked you what it is, but I want to put something more specific on this and put some bones on it. There's a guy by the name of Edgar Sheen uh, who wrote a book called Organizational Culture and Leadership, where he identifies three aspects of any uh, culture. How do you define, how do you talk about culture in general? He says there's three things that we've got to consider. The first one is what he calls the artifacts of uh, an organization. What are artifacts? Artifacts are the visible qualities of your organization, It is your output. Um, I don't know how many of you have read um, uh, Crouch, Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, okay? Crouch's whole premise is culture is not something that you live with. It's not so much a worldview, which purely intellectualizes the question. Rather, what it is, it's what you make. It's the product. It's the output of your life, and your culture is defined by that output, So the first thing that creates um, a a culture is the output of your organization. What is the meaning, what the meaning of those artifacts are, we get to later, but the fact is what's coming out. And so there's got to be a question that's asked, what does a student that we have invariably defined as mature in this organization look like? What does he or she look like? How does she function? How does she serve? How does, he, how does he work? What kind of experiences does that person have on the other side of being with me in this ministry have? And can I generalize about those things? What does that say? Um, uh, what they become when they graduate, of course. Um, the way you decide to put together your small group ministry, that's an artifact of your ministry. That is the plans that you make to say, okay, okay. This semester, what we're going to do is dot, dot, dot. That's an artifact. What is the product? What are you making as your, um, your thing? And in many ways, your, your entire youth ministry as a whole is also an artifact in, in some degrees. Okay, so that's the first aspect of it. second one that is slightly more, um, slightly more subtle than this <clears throat> are what Sheen calls beliefs and values. Beliefs and values. These are the meanings of the artifacts. Okay? We see these things come out of our ministry, and then we decide what do those things mean? Those are our beliefs. These are self-conscious, they are commitments that are espoused. You know what I mean by espoused? We embrace those things. Well, let me tell you about kids today. Okay? Well, honestly, our youth group has never been the kind that fill in the blank. Um, they, they become, what happens is these particular sayings end up becoming cliche in your organization. They, they, they become like the way in which people do that. It, it can also be the meaning of your presence. One of the things I'm learning, I think, in my, in my job here is how different people's job descriptions are. It's some of, sometimes it's very difficult to universalize youth ministry because y'all are all called to a lot of different things. And the expectations that are placed upon youth ministries are as different as the pastors who head up your churches (laughs) or youth committees that help oversee what you do. But regardless, you are part of that mixture and the, the sort of cliches you say about yourself. Honestly, I'm just really not that great a teacher, someone might say. Honestly, I'm not that great at pastoral care. I'm the kind of person that blah, blah, blah. You've assigned a meaning to the output of your ministry. That's what those things are. So what happens is is, is, is that you end up developing some jargon to talk about your ministry, to talk about your your, your group of uh, people. All right? So but all of this still is informed, even yet more fundamentally, by an invisible uh, layer of culture that Sheen calls underlying assumptions. Underlying assumptions. These are the ideas that have become so taken for granted that you barely find any variation of it among a social unit. In other words, there's this degree of consensus that, that, that results from constantly implementing these values and beliefs that we've come to be committed to. And, and so that if something else comes to question some of these underlying assumptions, people will look at it as if it's inconceivable. Go back to the iPhone thing with Steve Ballmer. They had gotten into a particular practice, an assumption of the way things ought to be, a PC in every home with every person running Windows software, that when someone came and challenged that very fact, that there is functionality that you can pack into this little tiny space right here that will be equally as valuable to people as the laptop that they have in their laps. It it was inconceivable. So the question that we've got to ask is, what is coming through the stream of our youth ministry and our church that goes unquestioned? And can it be anything? Now, look, there are some things that don't need to go unquestioned because they are theological commitments. Okay, that's fine. But oftentimes, even some of those are based, when you really start to dig into them, on the thinnest of Bible evidence. I'll give you another example. So we had to have a conversation. I might get in trouble for this one, so I won't name any names. When I, when I started at my church, we started talking about uh, the ways in which people could give. And um, uh, there was a, 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 a simple way to give in our church, and that was to show up on Sunday mornings and remember to write a check as the plate got passed around and you put something in the plate, right? <clears throat> so um, I came along and I was like, huh, okay, helpful, good. Since that, though, is our primary income stream, I wonder if we might make it a little easier for other people, especially the younger generation, for whom checks are a great mystery. You do know this. No college student knows how to write a check at all. It's a complete... Where do I put the... What are these lines for? <clears throat> but if I look at them and say, Venmo me 20 bucks, like, oh yeah, sure. And it's on my phone. In- instantaneous. And I say, like, I don't know. Maybe we should give them an online giving option, Right? Well, this, and this has actually happened, and never mind who said it, but we were sitting there in this conversation with a session, someone in the room piped up and was kind of like, you know what, I have always just felt that like there really was, there was something, there was something spiritual about the visceral act of like physically placing that thing inside that plate that it just felt like obedience to me you've heard this before. So this is like a thing. Does somebody write an article on this? What's the deal? And I literally thought they were kidding to the point where I went, and I've now realized, oh, I should have been quite serious. It's more spiritual to have the physical act of sticking something in a plate. I'm like, where did we think that up? Now, look, you may decide in your church, like, I agree with that. Okay, fine, whatever. But did it get questioned as why that's the way to do it? Did it get questioned? Can we ask those questions? What are the things that are flowing through the culture of underlying assumptions in your ecosystem that get unquestioned? RYM is trying to force us to ask questions between these two aspects. We don't spend enough time talking about this. We'll get to that in the second session. But a philosophy of ministry begins to be formed in a conversation between these two things. Number one, can I talk about what my beliefs and values are? Now, look, that's what we do. All these charts and all of the principles and presuppositions and all the things we're about to dive into here real quick, we're trying to offer you what we might refer to as a conceptual recommendation. Here is a way, we're not saying it's the way, it's a way of conceptualizing a foundational belief's that are in keeping with the Reformed tradition and help account for the great differences in your ministry, the great variety, the diversity that's even in this room. That's what we want to offer you, right? And then get you together once a year so that you are questioning the underlying assumptions that sometimes are living in agreement with these beliefs and values and other times are contradicting them. And I don't realize why. Now, look, this feels like a very subtle, very obscure, why in the world would this ever be interesting to anybody kind of conversation. But I can tell you that unless I'm learning to build a good culture, I'm really not doing my job. The best youth ministers are culture builders. They're there to contribute in a meaningful way to the culture of their church by building healthy youth ministries that know why they're there and know exactly where they're going, and are doing their best to live with all the bumps and bruises and all the curveballs that ministry throws at them as they do. That's what's going on. And as you begin to work through this process, what emerges from it is a unique, stylized, dare I use the word, contextualized plan for how you're going to do ministry in that place. We call that your philosophy of ministry. Okay? Again, what I'm really trying to do is, uh, this is really funny, my youth director just texted me and said, are you doing YLT this year? Should I? You know what? This is going to be great. <laughs> Why didn't Scott come? Just curious. I don't, I don't. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everybody, everybody wave. Like, where the heck are you? Yeah. Okay, there's go. This will freak you out. <laughs> Sorry. That's funny. Okay. So what I'm trying to do is establish what we mean by a philosophy of ministry. All right. Which means I got to do a second thing. So remember this, because this is about culture. Next, I want to do the same thing with this idea of philosophy of ministry. Actually, this comes off. Cutting edge. Cutting edge, Joel. You didn't just bring any old thing up here now, did you? Exactly. That's exactly right. All right, so I gotta leave time for questions. Here we go. RYM's philosophy of ministry is attempting to be here's my little summary statement from this morning. We are attempting to be the chief informer of the culture of your youth ministry. That's our attempt on every level, but especially at that beliefs and values level up there. A philosophy of ministry is the meaning of your ministry, it's what it means. And, and I, would, I would ask you the great question, is that not what motivates you in ministry in the first place? What does this mean? What does it mean by my daily getting up and going through a certain exercise, often which is very uncomfortable? Is there anything more uncomfortable than a high school lunchroom? It's the most intimidating spot in the world for any adult to go marching into. And it's not that much easier for the, people, the students that are there, you know? So what we can do is is we can talk about a philosophy of ministry on three different levels. In my opinion, and this is why I wanted to use y'all as guinea pigs, we have not distinguished very well, meaning RYM, between the three levels of a philosophy of ministry. And so I'm attempting to spell out something to, to, to help respond to some of the questions that I often get from second years and beyond about why RYM does the approach that it does. Okay? When we're talking about the philosophy of ministry... There are three levels that we mean. Number one is we're talking about a theology of ministry. Okay? A theology of ministry. The theology of ministry are these core values of kingdom vision, of our purpose, why we believe ministry should be here, of what our goals are. Uh, What what are we trying to see building, building in students? It's what our principles are. I'm going to make a recommendation in the second hour that of all the great theological issues that you, should, that you could pick your youth ministry to be about, we want to recommend four of them that are actually quite central. And I'll speak with 25 years of campus ministry experience, that if you deliver me a young person who is conversant in questions of truth, grace, change, and destiny... You've given me a great gift. Okay? That's our principles, but those are theological in nature. It also is informed by our ecclesiology. You've probably heard that RYM is also a very church centered ministry. Uh, parachurch ministries we affirm for the goodness that God has used them for, yet we also critique that movement by saying that it, it oftentimes divorces itself from this one institution that God has leveled promises for that are unlike any other organization. And as it turns out, most of these large parachurch organizations, like, Campus Crus- like Crew, uh, like Young Life, are beginning to do a lot of reevaluation about their relationship to the local church. Some of that's historical, some of it's novel, who knows where that'll end up. We are talking about renewal dynamics, How does someone become godly? How does holiness get instilled in the life of my students? That's a theological question. We're talking about the means of grace. We're talking about presuppositions. What are those those biblical values that shape the way that I approach this student? What's my posture as I approach students? So that's what we would call a theology of ministry. It's all of this rich heritage that we have coming down to us, from the Reformed tradition that gives us a platform on which to build off of, okay? But that's not yet what we would call a philosophy of ministry proper. Philosophy of ministry proper is this middle section. Philosophy of ministry. I'm a decent speller, but when I get up on a board, it all goes out the window. I don't know why that happens. So RYM, though is trying to talk to you about a unique approach to student ministry issues and, 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 and universalize those across contexts. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to talk a good bit about what our relationship is to the larger body of the church. How does youth ministry fit within our church? What are the expectations that were placed upon me about the church? That to would be totally diverse. Some of you were hired... Because your leadership wanted a cool person to come and make their teenagers want to be there. I don't think that's all that bad an idea, by the way. Don't, don't, don't necessarily roll your eyes from that. But they wanted their teenager to want to be at youth group because good kids are at youth group, and they need you to come and be there <coughs> and make that cool for them. That's a description. Others of you have people that have gotten very much into uh, 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 family-style ministry, Okay. Mm-hmm. You're not a youth director, you're a family minister, which means that I'm here to help pastor the whole family. And youth are a part of that, but we're taking a family-based approach. In other words, someone's got to answer that question about your role and the expectations that have been placed upon you in that particular church. That's philosophy of ministry stuff. <clears throat> another issue, that, another, another variable that we're going to throw at you, what is your organizational model? Who do you report to, youth director? <clears throat> Who is your boss? Now, if you're like most staffs that I encounter in church staffs, everyone is your boss. And everyone will tell you that that's the most miserable work environment that you can imagine. When you go back and you start to ask why youth ministers burn out, this is one of the things. Because of the 25 people in your youth group, that means that there are 50 adults or so that are your boss and tell you what to do, and come and complain to you, and talk to you about this. There's not a conversation. They're telling you where to go. Then, of course, there's this whole group of people called the elders. They can tell you what to do. They can call you up you know, no matter what and tell you what to do. In other words, we got, it's a horrible work environment. What is our relationship as a youth ministry to the rest of the church? That's a philosophy of ministry question, one that's got to be answered. Here's the thing. What am I doing with my staff if I have one? Now, for those of you that are flying solo, that's fine, but I'll bet you even those of you that are flying solo have some volunteer somewhere, whether it's parents, some of you have an assistant uh, uh, youth minister, some of you are assistant youth ministers. What are the roles and relationship that exist between this? I I don't think that this has been another discovery about in the last three years. Helping people get into lanes that they understand and are serving with joy in is not easy. It takes a lot of work. Um, we, we're convinced at Christ Press. we talk about this all the time, that we simply want to get in a place where you can serve with joy. Because the job that you take no joy in is very difficult to do well. Okay? So the, joy, the, the question of our roles and the responsibilities. The philosophy of ministry is also about how you um, categorize, is my first word, came to mind. is that a good word? How do, you, how do you diagnose, that's a better word, how do you diagnose a student? Any student in your ministry, you look at and you immediately form a judgment about them. And that judgment ends up creating what you look at as ministry for that student. Years ago, actually, this was one of our very first times, this was probably maybe first or second uh, uh, um, uh, philosophy of ministry training seminar we had. This used to happen down at the beach, by the way, along with the, uh, uh, the, the summer beach conference. But there was a guy sitting on the front row. I remember it was right down here. And the whole while where I'm going through some of these data points of how we, do, how we encourage you to uh, uh, diagnose students, he's just doing this. Just shaking his head and grinning at me. He's, he's in college or something like That's just kind of doing that. And so I could feel his disdain coming off of him. Okay? So I, I recognized him and I was like, it feels like you've got something to say. He's like, hey, man, I just got to tell you, in my experience... Uh, kids don't like being put in a box, man. And you know, I was like, "Look, if if somehow I was trying really hard to be gracious, I said, if somehow I have communicated to you that um, uh, uh, we're trying to sort of like label people and never let them out of that label, forgive me. That's not what I intend. But let me assure you, you got a box. <laughs> you, you you may not like the boxes I'm giving you. You got a box." And what the worst thing that we think you could do in RYM is to allow those boxes to function in your ministry uncritically. Because invariably what happens is you walk into a room and the people that you click with are the ones who like you. I didn't say the ones who are like you, the ones who like you. I used to make this joke. It's very easy to be my friend. Just tell me that you like me. I'm the easiest person to be a friend to at all, right? But what happens? All of a sudden I end up building ministries that look like what? Me. Now, some of that's inevitable. We can talk about that if we want to get to the nuance question later. But really, have I started asking this question about the boxes I am putting students in? We want to make a recommendation for how you ought to do that. It's a philosophy of ministry. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got to hurry here. Last one. Then there is your youth ministry. What we're hoping for in RYM is that consideration of the theology of ministering will then be fleshed out in a philosophy of ministering and that you'll take it home and come up with a plan. <laughs> but you ha- And we talk about all three of these levels as a philosophy of ministry, and that's where we've equivocated in the past. I already had this seminar, Les. What new can I learn? Well, this is brand new. Fresh off the presses here. If we have equivocated and not been clear in the past, it's because oftentimes we've not distinguished between these. We expect that you will have a stylized program of engagement with your students that you put together that is on the basis and done in the light of these first two categories. So you see why we think it's good once a year to come back, remind yourself of what these things are, And ask myself whether this plan that I've implemented is actually consistent with what I said that I want it to be about. See the value of that? So the question is, is this culture, this development of our culture is informed by our philosophy of ministry. And for that reason, we've got to sort of come to... This is what we talk about when we talk about a philosophy of ministry. It's a unique set of priorities and styles that you embraced that's used by you in carrying out ministry in your context. A unique set of priorities and styles. Okay? All right, let me give you one small... Eh, I'm out of time. Let's do an illustration. All right, Good. time for questions. I got eight minutes for questions. What do you got? Thoughts and things. Give me your name and where you're from, first of all, before you go. I'm John in Mississippi, Lakewood. Yes, Lakeland Press. Good, you good. Um, Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do this, and this hasn't been done in a long time, so there's really a lot of room to work with. Mm. Uh, two questions I think kind of go together. How do you how do you do this in a way well I, I should I should say instead, uh, I assume this should be done in a way that fits with whatever the philosophy of ministry that is operating within the larger church. What happens if what I come up with or what anyone comes up with doesn't quite Oh, and it almost certainly will not. Almost certainly walk, it's right? Okay. Yes, yes. Because what you're finding is is this this is another piece of the equation. Again, part of my philosophy of ministry. And I'm going to define this in the second session as understanding what are the ministry dynamics that are in place. A philosophy of ministry is far more. and I've got a graphic for this, so don't panic about whether you're grasping this. A philosophy of ministry is more about identifying those factors. That, that, that helped me bridge the gap between what I've come to love and, and, and embrace. We're going to stand up here, and all the speakers are going to be basically living around our love of Scripture, justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's that truth, grace, change, and destiny thing I was talking about just a minute ago, Right? We, we, we want to sell you on those. And I think if, if we got a decent track record, people walk up being like, man, you're exactly right. That, that, that whole grace and change thing, that's golden. Man, that scripture deal, I get it. Wow, kids have no idea of the future. So they come to love it and they see that and they want it to be part of their ministry life. A philosophy of ministry helps you identify what will be the trouble spots in achieving that so that these two things are consistent. And again, I've got, a, I've got a horizontal graphic rather than a vertical one that I'll do in the next session. But here's the deal. What my church is doing versus what I become convinced of is a massive dynamic. It's a huge deal. And what that means is it may mean that I don't look at success in my ministry from a three-year plan. It's probably a 10-year plan. Because what, what voice do I have in this conversation about where we are going as a church because the, the inertia, remember, all that stuff that I said about culture is that the more successful my church is, I'm about to get heretical here, yeah, the more successful my church is, the harder it is to break into that ecosystem. And I'm going to tell you, if you're thinking about being a lead pastor, for those of you that are being like, you know, youth ministry for a few years and then kind of go to lead pastor. To me, what I've grown to realize, the most, the most terrifying thing you could do is to follow a very successful lead pastor. I'm not sure I'd touch it. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't need to have people pastor churches where men were successful. You just need to know that there's a very large chance that you're going to be the, you're going to be the sacrificial lamb. Why? Because the successfulness of that church, it, 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 it doesn't just congeal. It hardens. It encrusts. And it's very difficult for a new personality because no matter how similar you think you are to your predecessor. No. Yes. Come Thank no matter how similar you think you are to that person, you're not the same and you do things differently. Um, so I, what, all, all that to say is I've got to go into an ecosystem and ask very different questions about being, what can I get away with in this context? Nine times out of 10 though, you're going to be the first voice that begins to encourage people to ask those questions about what is the culture of this church? Yeah. Yeah, okay, uh, I wouldn't use the word problematic yet. Now, if they fire you because of it, <laughs> we might use the word problematic for that. But, 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 I'll, but I'll say this. One of the things that, that you look at, and a lot of the organizational theory people talk a lot about what they call systems theory, and they talk about how powerful it is to have one person who knows who they are in the midst of a conversation. My job is not to answer every question that I get as a pastor. It's not. My job is to be a non-anxious, they use the phrase, differentiated presence in the midst of my church. That is, I know who I am, and it's okay that you don't like it. I was dealing with this literally yesterday. Someone was calling and doesn't like a policy that we've established as the church, and they stated to one of my staff members that they are planning on being very vocal about their opposition to this particular policy. It's coming. But here's my deal. My job is not to answer that. We can have a talk if you want to go to lunch and visit about it. That's great. My job is not to answer that. My job is to be when I'm convinced God has called me to be in the midst of this context and that my leadership has allowed me to be. See what I'm saying? So, so you're not a potted plant is what I'm saying. Even though oftentimes youth ministry, you might feel like you are because you've got a lot of personality dynamics that are working out there. We'll talk about that in just a second. But I would say there's a lot of power to a youth minister that's coming in and saying, hey, let me tell you what we're doing. Because in our ministry, we're trying to think through some things and really get ourselves aligned. Start talking in the language of alignment. You'll be amazed how people are like, well, I, I, I talk more about that. A lot, especially ruling elders, because ruling elders have this stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if they're running successful companies, because they had to learn this the hard way. But of course, in church, it's, we don't ever think about that, because that sounds too much like a business. <laughs> don't ever say that ever again. You're trying to run the church like a business. Don't say that ever. That's not the case. Great question, John. Yes, Brady. So Brady, yeah. Mm-hmm. Columbus, Ohio, go Bucks. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't even know who the Bucks are, but whatever. So, uh, Buckeyes, Buckeyes. Got it, got it, got it. A, a, a Buccaneers, whatever. So a little off, along those lines, um, I, I have the privilege, I guess, uh, four years ago I started this church, and uh, it's about four to 500 people, and they've never had a youth program. Dana, You're the lead? And yeah. And okay. they never had a youth program credit different things they all admit they're like we have no idea anything youth ministry so basically if I want to try something there there's a lot of all right go for it and so how do I set up could you speak to setting up for whoever's next whoever comes after me (laughs) are you planning on quitting (laughs) no but how do do I set up so that way when they do that they don't go through the well that that's not how Brady set this up that's not how there's no way I don't want that there's no way I hear, I hear what you're wanting to do, but there's just no way. There is no way that you can keep you from being the pastor of your church. Now, we'll say this. You've got four to 500 people coming to your church, and you don't have a youth minister yet? No, we didn't until oh, I got there. Got it. Oh, you're the youth minister. Yes. I thought you said you were the lead yeah, pastor I'm of this church. Gotcha. Sorry. Okay, got it. Lead the youth ministry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, um, as far as being in your youth group, um, I, I don't know that that's the goal. One of the things that I'm going to talk about is... Um, in, 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 well, I, let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, we'll, then we'll take a break after this. Brady gets the last question sort of thing. There's a confluence of factors that go into creating... That's really weird because the sound goes out right here. Did you do that? And then it comes back. Um, there's three things that create your role in that organization. All right? There's first of all your demographic. All right? I already know something about your demographic, Brady, because you said go Bucks. That says something to me. I'm not, I'm not even making a joke. This is a sense in which we take pride in Ohio State football. It's a big deal. It probably stands large and looms large in the culture of your church. That's a demographic piece of information. And there's all kinds of other demographic information. There's male versus female. There's, there's Are you a suburban church or an urban church? It's a very big deal. Um, are you in a successful youth program? Or are you in a rebuilding youth program? Are you in a program that's had trauma in the past? Ooh, that's a big one, or not. Number two is the uh, gifts. I'm going to use the word gifts of your church. And that is what has your church done well, because it's probably gravitated to those things. There's something that it became known as, or there's something that the leadership wanted to become known as, and they committed themselves to being that church. You got to work. You got to work with your church. You got to spend a lot of time. I would say going to Acts two, starting verse forty-five, wherever that description is of the, of the lo- local church, and realize there's five things that the early church did. They did evangelism. The Lord added to their number of those are being saved daily. Uh, they did a discipleship, they all com- com- devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, they did uh, fellowship and encouragement, they were all together in one place. They did mercy ministry, everybody sold all their goods to make sure everybody had what they needed. And they worshiped, they broke bread together, the breaking of bread. So there's a sense in which those five aspects should describe in some degree all biblical churches. But let's be honest, what happens in any given context is one, maybe two, of those features steps out and becomes your first foot forward into the community. Some of you, you you had a guy who founded the church and was Mr. Mercy Mercy Ministry. And the whole church prides itself and loves the fact that we serve the poor in our community. That's a big deal. It's a big deal for a church to identify that. doesn't mean that they ignore the teaching and the worship and the evangelism, et cetera, et cetera. It just means that's that's their thing. Now, if you go to Perimeter Church, the largest Presbyterian Church in America church in Atlanta, they put evangelism on the very front burner and will never, you know, let there never be a shadow of turning from it, okay? It, it, we're an evangelism church, and everything's going to fit around that ecosystem because Randy Pope is a very strong personality in that regard, which leads me to the last concentric circle, which is your gifts as a minister. what are you good at? What are you into? You may be the best small group leader ever in the world. You want to know why? You you know how you know you're the best small group leader in the world? Because you love it. Usually it's that thing that you love the most and people are responding to the best that make up your gifts. In the midst of all of this is what is creating for us uh, a question about... The conference, this is where our conversation about dynamics of ministry are going to take place in the confluence of all those. So it's a long answer to your question, Brady, about the fact that all of these things work together in order to present to us our context. How do I make sure that it doesn't bear my imprint? You'll never do it. And the next person that follows you is going to struggle. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad struggle because in God's good providence, you may have somebody in there that majors in your minors and minors in your majors. I happen to be in a situation where I am pastoring a church for the last three years where my associate pastor was the lead pastor for 16 years prior to that. I always listened for the gasp. whenever I always like, who's going to gasp? Because when I told everybody that, they were like, oh, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. The old pastor can't stick around. Well, there's a couple of reasons why it's worked. Number one, he's the most gracious, humble person I know. Okay, he's been unbelievably deferential. But secondly, though, our gifts fit. He is very good at stuff I'm horrible at and I actually can do things that he just hates to do. See what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be a bad situation as long as you're learning and figuring out yourself. A topic we will take up in our next thing after this very last quick question. Hey, it's really fast, so Good. Right in the middle. Oh, dynamics of ministry. The dynamics of ministry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the conversation about the dynamics of ministry are going to occur within this confluence of these three factors. Good question. Hey, y'all take a break. For how long, Joel? I'm going to start talking at 10.33. Yeah, sure.